Well, if, if you have a Bible, Mark's Gospel is where we're back at this morning, chapter 7. That is page 712 in the church Bibles. Going to finish what we started two weeks ago. I'm smiling because a song just came to mind when I said that. I've got to stop that. <laughs> Gosh. All right. And, and what we'll do is we'll just read, uh, beginning in verse 14, we read the whole all the way to 23, we'll just um, read to 14, even though we're going to cover the verses before that. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered this house, his disciples asked him about this parable, Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of a man's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, Malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and make a man unclean. Amen. If you would bow with me, please. Father, what is needed right now, for me it's not deserved, and for us cannot come apart from your enabling. Everything, God, of consequence depends entirely on you. So please, in your mercy, look upon us in your love, bring glory to your name, and to the degrees that it's necessary, Father, revolution into our lives. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. A while back, I received an honest note from a person. I asked them for permission to quote from it, and they graciously gave it. The note read, I am struggling to accept what the Bible teaches on how to live my life. I believe Jesus died for us, but I just can't seem to change the person I am into the image of God. I always seem to fail, and I don't, don't know what else to try. Can you give me any ideas on how to become a better person, the person that Jesus really wants me to be? And I wonder how you might reply to a letter like that if it laid on your desk. I mean, facing up to our failures, facing up to our sins, especially since a lifelong battle with indwelling sin is to be expected, right? Sometimes we win, but oftentimes we lose a whole lifetime of that. And let's say you're a parent, and it wasn't a letter from a friend, but it's a question from your child. And would all we be able to say is, honey, read your Bible a whole lot more, pray a whole lot more, and by the way, watch the company you keep, realizing that the Pharisees read their Bibles all the time, they prayed three times a day religiously, fasted no less than 100 times a year, and isolated themselves wonderfully from, quote, sinners. And it's just not Christians who battle with the difficulty of changed life. Douglas Copeland is is an author. He wrote the book Girlfriend in a Coma. And he writes out the scene where there's this gentleman named Richard. And Richard's the narrator of the play. And he's playing poker with some friends. And one of his friends named Wendy gets intense. And she says, I read about this study which said that no matter how hard you try, the most you could possibly change and improve yourself was 5%. Richard says, Wendy's fact made me queasy. 
The news reminded me of how unhappy I was with who I am. I wanted nothing more than to transform 100%. If Wendy's right, what hope do I have of change? Well, here in Mark chapter 7, we are going to encounter two different answers to that question. Both are concerned on some level with righteousness and change, but their path to righteousness and their path to change could not be any more different. One was a path which depended on techniques and the self. The other was the path which depended on honesty about the self and a savior. A savior who's going to tell us our problem is at its root an internal problem with no external solution. So how foolish and how dishonest were these religious men who thought and taught that one could regulate sin out of their life, that holiness and godliness were simply matters of outward performance and not inward reality. Essentially, all through the years, lying to themselves and lying to others about who they actually were before a holy God. One line of thought brought them into conflict And the other, of course, brought Jesus to a cross. Now, two weeks ago, we learned that the Pharisees in this little hand-washing and cup-cleaning incident in the opening verses of chapter 7 were nothing more than religious leaders giving misinterpretations and additions to God's law. And they were teaching that these additions had to be obeyed if righteousness and acceptance with God could be enjoyed. So they said to the people, do your ceremonial washing, stay away from sinners, isolate from the very people that God would want to become his children, and so on. And they had this whole uh, bundle of list of rules and regulations. We also said that while, yes, it's true that we can very easily fall into the trap of misinterpretation, it's probably more likely that we would fall into the trap of additions to God's word. Additions which we make into doctrine. Additions which we make uh, as the basis for our acceptance with God and with men and women, or even um, our understanding of what it means to mature in the faith. And, of course, the list of additions is exhaustive. Uh, No smoking, no dancing, how we dress, how we use our money, the company we keep, the food that we eat, no tattoos, and on and on and on. And Jesus rebukes these Pharisees in verse 6, if your Bible's open, telling them essentially their worship of God is skin deep and man-made. And therefore, verse 7, it is of no value at all. Right? Sabbath by Sabbath means nothing to God. In other words, the heart of their problem, Jesus says in verse 6, was the problem of their heart. But of course, that was part of their con game with people. People cannot read hearts correctly. Not all the time. Only God can. And the Pharisees loved the applause of the crowds. So yes, outwardly, the Pharisees Pharisees appeared before men and women as the most serious and the most committed and the most holy. And they wanted everyone to know it. And any competition for those titles, they were ready to do battle. They weren't holy. They They were evil. Now, it's very easy to trash the Pharisees and say, oh, I thank God that I'm not like them. But I want to tell you not so fast, and here's why. And I want you to think in terms of relationships with other people, especially parent to children. And as our children move up in age, they develop, and rightfully so, now listen carefully, they develop, and rightfully so, their own convictions about how life is to be lived. 
And so you have two groups, fallen parents, fallen grown-up children, right, who are not arguing over God's truth given in God's word, but now are arguing over parental additions and convictions which are not sound doctrine. But it's a parent's own convictions and a parent's own additions, and the grown-up child cannot in good conscience hold to them. Okay, now get this in your head, imperfect parent, because I suppose every honest parent would say we're imperfect, an imperfect child, and they're embarking into the world, is it right, and this is the question, is it right for the parent to bind the conscience of the grown-up child with the parent's own additions and the parent's own convictions and preferences, giving the impression by the parent that that's doctrine. This is doctrine. I ask you, is that right? And would the application of that be something like the parents begin to make uh, ultimatums real or veiled uh, ultimatums, relationships diminish in a kind of, man, something's going to ha- bad happen to you. Better listen to us. If their child doesn't bow, grown-up child doesn't bow to the parent's conscience and the parent's convictions, forgetting that the, parent, or the child belongs to God first. Now, I want to ask you, does that work in a friendship? Does that work in a church? Is that how Christianity works? Is that how Our salvation works. You see that line in verse 8? You have sent away God's commands. And you've mastered. um, You're mastered by your own traditions and your own additions. That's your standard practice. And again, we're not talking about clear biblical doctrine, but additions, convictions, and preference trying to be passed off as biblical doctrine. So, in the case of the parent-child relationship, if you don't hold to those convictions, then I won't hold you. You see, that's not a relationship. That is bondage. And that is what the Pharisees were doing to the people of their day, kowtowing people to their own minds. Now, again, I ask you, tell me that doesn't happen today. Tell me that doesn't happen in a church, in a relationship, in a home. And aren't you glad, aren't I glad, that God doesn't operate with those kinds of terms? And do we realize how many parent and grown-up relationships Uh, Children relationships, Christian relationships, period. Their bruise are broken, are, are the worst. They're not true. They're untrue. Because we do not relate to each other on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus, but based on their performance of our convictions and additions. And if they're not hitting it, then we're not liking them. Trying to make our obligations their obligations. Breaking the very command of God itself. And we know how this works, right? All Johnny, I know how to be a perfect dad, has to do is he writes his book with his own convictions, uh, his own additions. He peppers it with scripture out of context and says, I really feel like this is good in my heart. And the people eat it up. And the honest adolescent coming into adulthood with some understanding of the Bible and she loves Jesus. She doesn't know what to do with the list of the commands from her parents' book and not from God's word. Work this out a little bit so the kids become circus animals, right? You do right, we're going to like you more, you do less, well. Or in the parent-children relationship, the parent might be tempted to play siblings off against each other, right? Why can't you be more like Billy Bob? He always has his radio tuned to Christian stations and his hair is nice and short and his clothes are neatly pressed. He carries his Bible everywhere he goes and you know what? He doesn't kiss on dates. 
all externals, like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. The question Mark is bringing to light is where is the basis of our authority? Does it lie solely in the Scripture, or is it Scripture and a little bit of tradition and a little bit of addition? And to answer that question, Jesus begins his talk there in verse 9. Number one point, dad and mom and money. You can see this if your Bible's open. Verse 9, uh, Jesus says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then he says, Moses said. Remember, that's a synonym for God said. God said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say, verse 11, here comes their addition, which they turned into doctrine and breaks the command of God. You say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise receive from me is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify, make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And here's the kicker. And you do many things like that. It's your way of life. Standing, standard operating procedure. Canceling what God says Elevating what you say, and Jesus says, you do this all the time. And then he gives an example. Corbin. Okay, so what is Corbin? Well, Corbin was a person devoting or giving some or all of their personal property or their personal wealth to God. And they made a vow, which of course is a fine thing to do. But since the gift was held in the temple trust, think of here of a kind of religious 401k or a religious savings account. So it was held in the temple trust. The Pharisees held command over that trust and they twisted it by their additions and of course uh, always to their personal gain because the Corman thing frankly was a big scam for some, for some. You see a person can make the Corbin vow. It all goes to God. The Pharisees benefit from this and in the meantime the person making the vow could still use the money for themselves anytime they actually like without actually breaking the vow. However, if a person who has Corbin his wealth in time finds that mom and dad are in need, the Pharisees said this person could not touch the trust to help their parents at all. Okay, why? We see that in verse 11. It was a gift devoted to God. And so the parents, again, would not receive any help at all if they were in need from their kids. However, Jesus said, since Corbin was never commanded, you're actually breaking God's command. And you're using your tradition and your additions to excuse yourself from actually keeping God's command to honor your parents. Which verse 9, again, Jesus says, is a clever little thing you do. It's a devilish way. Why do I say devilish? Well, Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel everywhere to win one single convert. And when you make them a convert, you make them twice as much as a son of hell as you are. Right? Why? Well, because the Pharisees were driving people away from God. And they were doing this kind of thing routinely. By their additions and their convictions and their misinterpretations, which were all wrong. The command is pretty clear. Honor your mom and dad. Remember, your dad and mom are going to be your dad and mom forever. God gave them to you. And if you've got a nest egg building up, terrific. But a later date comes and your mom and dad are in need. They're in a pickle. You give them some help. Who says? God says. 
do for them in their latter years what they uh, did for you and I in our earlier years. And I don't know about you, but all I could do for myself in my early, early, early years was use the restroom (laughs) and a diaper (laughs) that had to be changed about 8 to 10 or maybe some days 14 times. Who knows? Dad and mom and money. Second point, you and me and depravity. Now, I want you to think with me, the flow of conversation that Jesus is on, essentially, what's the right use of the law? Right? We learned that this morning. Question number 15, a New City Catechism. At its root, the law shows us our sin and shows us our need of a Savior. The law, then, is not a ladder which we said to climb. The law is a mirror which reflects and exposes. So it makes good sense to me the flow that Jesus has here because surely some of his listeners were probably playing that little Corbin scam and probably all of his listeners on some level uh, broke the fifth commandment and did not honor their mother and father. Maybe they say slanderous things about their mother and father. Maybe they would not help their mother and father if their life depended on it. Hard in law-breaking sin. So it makes sense to me the direction and the pace that Jesus goes down. In fact, if you think about it, it's incredibly compassionate way. He's so serious. Verse 14, uh, he speaks with unusual emphasis. You will not find that phraseology anywhere in the Gospels. Verse 14, listen to me, everyone. Listen to me, not to them. That's the emphasis there. Understand this. This is what Jesus is saying. I want you to stop, and I want you to think, and I want you to be honest, and you piece the facts together as you begin to flow through your mind. Okay, this is not a personal opinion. This is specific revelation, true to the entire human race. Here's the question. What makes a person unclean? Where does the origin of our sin lie? Answer, verse 15, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Verse 20, the repetitive nature is needed. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that all that horrible evil listed in verses 21 and 22 comes from. So we need to be clear. This is not a description of a certain kind of man or a certain kind of woman. In fact, you can't see it in the Greek, but it needs to be said, Jesus uses the definite article in a way that doesn't come across in any of the modern translations. You have to go back to the King James Version original, and it reads, the man. See, it doesn't read uh, literally in the Greek, it would, be, it would be the humanity. Of course, that doesn't read well, the humanity, so they say, a man. King James, the man. So again, not a certain kind of person, but this is a description of all people. All humanity. Now, even as you look at that list in verses 21 and 22, and I hope you see it there, okay, some people will say, okay, I'm honest enough to admit that I've done those. Or (laughs) people do that. (laughs) But people are unprepared to say many of what Jesus says is the source of our sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit and profanity and envy and slander and arrogance and folly. And it's customary for society and sometimes, frankly, even in uh, pockets of Christianity to explain human sin under these three headings. So it's our environment, it's our education, 
It's our examples, okay? Environment, education, example. So somebody, maybe a well-meaning purpose, maybe a sociologist, explains the reason why Mr. X did all these terrible things was because of his environment. So either his home or his city or his school, very poor, very bad, and he reacted to all that, and he did bad things to let everybody know how bad he felt and how bad it was for him. Or... His father was so wealthy that he just rebelled against that because wealth, you know, drove him to do all the things that he did wrong. Uh, Dad didn't make him work enough. And so that was the problem. So they have both ends covered, poor and wealthy. Okay, that's in, that's in um, environment. Now, education. So that people say that if we just had um, more access to proper schools, Christian schools, Ivy League schools, then she wouldn't have done those things. But if you read your newspaper, that becomes a real problem when you read how people from Ivy League schools, right? The Citadel commit murder and steal, uh, steal term papers and rape and so on. So now you have to adjust again. So you got environment, you got education or examples. Remember uh, Johnny Cash's song? Uh, My daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought it was quite a joke and it got a lot of laughs from a lot of folks. It seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal, gal would giggle and I'd get red and some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head because life ain't easy for a boy named Sue, Right? So we just didn't have any examples or we had poor examples or we had good examples. They let us down and we just threw in the towel and said, what's the use? I want you to think with me because the gospel calls for an honesty that we have to be prepared to give. And you're sensible people. You read your newspapers, you know your own lives. You see your children. Some of you see your grandchildren. As sensible people, are these three acceptable answers to the problem of human depravity? Are they? Or is it wrong and simply a way to say that whatever is wrong with the world, and whatever is wrong in me, it's not because of me. It's something on the outside which affects me. Because as significant as our environment, our education, and our examples are, it would be wrong to think that they were not. They do not rationally, nor do they fully explain the problem. Nor, and we've been running this race for years now, they do not provide the solution. Environment education example cannot explain the problem. They cannot fix the problem. And if they could, then it was a royal waste of time. And it was the height of ignorance for Father God to send Son Jesus to the cross to die for sin. See, what Jesus is saying here is that no amount of insulation, listen carefully, no amount of isolation from the world, Christian mom and dad, listen carefully, can protect you, can protect your children from the sin in their own hearts, right? No amount of insulation, isolation, uh, religious participation, Christian man or woman can protect you from the greed and the lust for power and the hate and on and on in our own heart. Nor do these religious rules, the Pharisees were passing out like candy, right? 
Now, we know how that works sometimes in, in Christianity. You go there and do this and do that and everything. It's got to be great. And the Bible says, let's start here. You and me in total depravity. Our uncleanliness comes from the very core of our being. This is Jesus explaining uh, the doctrine of original sin. That we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. God made man right. In Adam, we all went wrong. We fell. Sin has marked us from our birth, which means you might be the most committed and most awesome Christian parent who ever walked the face of the earth, but you do not have the power to discipline the effects of original sin out of your child, out of you. To that same end, you might be the super Christian, the best of the best among us, but you will never find yourself in the place where you will not need to say, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through me keeping the law, through me being awesome, then Christ died for nothing. And so there in verse 17, Jesus' disciples, they asked for an explanation of what was said in verse 15. And Jesus begins with a very, very positive Very, very wonderful, uplifting. You see it there in verse 18. Are you guys so dull? (laughs) Do you know what it literally reads? Are you guys alpha idiots? That's that's how it reads in the Greek. It's a compound word. Are you alpha idiots? Let's be honest here. Think this through. Food can't make a man or a woman a sinner any more than abstaining from anything can make a man or a woman holy. Let me say that again. Food can't make a, a man or a woman a sinner any more than abstaining from anything can make a man or a woman holy. That's what Jesus is saying. In verse 19, by way of hindsight, Mark says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, why did he say that, and why is it in parentheses? Well, remember, Peter was the source, the main source for Mark as he was writing out his gospel. And if you know your Bible, Acts chapter 10, remember that little vision in Acts 10 where all the food comes down, and Peter learns from God that it's all good now, Peter. All the food is good, and you can eat what you like, and you can even eat with Gentiles, Peter. And Peter began to discover that the key to his acceptance with God was certainly not going to be what was on his plate but it was going to be in a person. Peter, the key to your sanctification is not going to be what's on your plate. But it's going to be in a person. Peter, it's not who you sit with to eat. It's who suffered for you, Peter. So Mark writes, verse 19, Jesus declared all food clean. And again, the redundancy is needed. All food clean, verse 20, but all hearts are dirty. All food clean, all hearts, everyone is dirty. And Jesus says that the source of our dirtiness is not external, it is internal. The source of our sin is not Hollywood, okay? It's not the internet, it's not your wife, it's not your husband, it's not your parents, it's not your kids, it's not your boss, it's not your job. It's your heart. Heart of the problem. It's the problem of the human heart. The Pharisees' approach to godliness was the equivalent of someone finding out they have um, stage four acute lymphoma, And the doctor says, you know what? Here's a little hand cream. It's going to take care of that. I mean, that would be ridiculous. If the problem is systemic coursing through the body, then there's no possibility that you can address the thing with any external means. Yet people operate under the assumption all the time, as long as the outside is fine, 
then it's all fine. I'm thinking about a long, long time ago now in my mind where I went to the pray at the pole thing and you gather around the pole and you pray. And it's probably just my group. But my group was saying, God protect us from Hollywood and God protect us from these people and God protect us from that people and God protect us from that group and God protect us from that group. And nobody said, God help me, sinner. God help me, help me. A long time ago, I painted a lady's house. With half a paintbrush. I did a good deed. It felt good to, good to do good. And to do good is good. Right? But the whole time I was painting with half a paintbrush. I was so mad because you see the rest of my youth group. They didn't come. Saturday before church. I was painting the lady's house. Those rascals. Who knows what they were doing. Probably at home watching cartoons or something like that. Poor Joe painting the house. Half a brush. Should have seen me. Great. So how do you think I behaved when I walked into church the next morning? You ever seen Saturday Night Fever? Remember when John Travolta walks into the dance floor? Hey, hey, you weren't there. Hey, I was. Hey, you weren't there. Hey, I was. I felt so good about the whole external thing, but I didn't tell anybody that I hated him from like 12 to 1.30 for not showing up. You walk into a public building, you see the poor smokers. Yes, poor smokers. They're, they're all in those little pens they have to be in when they do their smoking. And the people walk by and it's like, oh, that's disgusting. And you're just ruining everything for the rest of us. And you're choosing so poorly. And maybe they are. I don't know. But I know this. You, you can't feel good about yourself uh, because you don't smoke when you might have maybe like two minutes earlier had dirty thoughts in your mind. So they're Dirty lungs are like horrible, but our dirty thoughts, well, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the environment cannot make us sin. The environment may appeal to our sin nature, but it doesn't make us sin. So someone says, okay, because this happens all the time. Let's just fix our environment. This is what we're going to do. We're going to get this group tackling that problem, that group tackling that problem, that group tackling that problem, and it's just going to be awesome, and we're going to create paradise, and we'll never have to deal with that battle environment again. So we'll create Christian villas. Bible Town. There's actually a place called Bible Town. There's actual Holy Grounds coffee shop. We're just going to put them everywhere. It's going to be great. Holy grounds. And, and our environment's going to be fixed and will be fixed. And then somebody raises their hand and knows their Bible and says, well, that's been tried. Actually, it was tried by God, if you would. Just read the first three chapters of the Bible. They called that place paradise. It didn't take very long for things to go bad in paradise. Hmm. That's why Jesus says what he says in verses 18 and 19, right? Through the teeth, past the gums, look out stomach, here it comes, and one more step, and you're done. But then he goes on, he moves from stomach to the heart. And you can see the awful reality is, is that we can't change our heart. Verse 20, it has to be an outside, if you would, God who works in the inside, because the problem is the inside. And when I see that list there in verses 21 and 22, and I look into my heart, I wish I could tell you that I don't see a match. I can't. I see a match. Every single item on that list that Jesus gave describes my heart. 
and I was raised well. I was well educated. I have a great wife and I have a great family life. And I'm glad that you can't always look into my heart because you might hate me and you might leave. Now, there's been a change, right? But it's been really, really slow. I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I should be either. But loved ones, before you're ready to dismiss me, you're like, I knew it. I knew it. I could tell. (laughs) Jesus says the same thing about all of you. (laughs) You see, the Pharisees, they hid behind the smokescreen of external workings. And studying the law of God, search the heart, show them their need of a Savior. They took the law, they added to it, and they made their additions their own Savior. And at the same time, they failed to see that no amount of isolation from the, quote, bad stuff or the, quote, bad people could protect them from the evil in their own hearts. Listen to John Stott. Even when we try our very best, we cannot do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God. Let's get it in there. Even when we try our very best, we cannot do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God. Okay? Only Christ can. Only faith in Christ. You can go to the furthest, most isolated place in the world, lock yourself in the room with a Bible, you still will not be able to deal with the immorality and the adultery in your heart. They're going to be right there with us. And so what the gospel says is God has to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And he did it in Christ alone. He did it through substituting our wickedness with the righteousness of Jesus as he hung on the cross to pay the debt of our sin. Isn't it amazing that we have to be told that just about every Sunday? Because we need God's mercy. We need God's son. We need his righteousness. Because what does the Bible say in the Old and New Testament? The righteous live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Are you being honest with yourself? Are you being honest with others? Pharisees couldn't do it. They were trying to lead others to that same end. Hey, hey, why don't your disciples, Jesus, why don't they wash their hands? Hey, Jesus, why don't your disciples play by our own rules? Jesus says, because they don't have to. They don't have to. That is good news. That is good news. Let's pray. If those will be serving communion, if you would come forward, please. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen.